I'm David Bryan. And I'm Brenda Bryan. This is Renovation Made Right. If you're considering a remodeling project now or sometime in the future, Renovation Made Right is your single source to help guide you through getting the project you want and an experience that you'll enjoy. Renovation Made Right tackles topics that range from how to select the right project and contractor to tips on surviving the remodeling process to best practices for kitchen and bath design. We have over 30 years of experience in the industry and are owners of the well-established design-build remodeling company Black Dog Builders in Salem and Nashua, New Hampshire. We're sitting down with industry professionals to tap into their experiences and insights so we can equip you with the tools you need to make your own project a success. So welcome back to another episode of Renovation Made Right. I am David Bryan. And I'm Brenda Bryan. My lovely co-host. And uh, one of the things we're going to do that we um, that have been kind of building up over uh, the last several shows we've been doing, we, occasionally we get questions from listeners, which has been awesome. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really set the show up previously to sort of be a Q&A kind of a, uh, of a show, but... Uh, we like the idea of doing it, and we like the questions, and so consequently, it's, it's given us the idea to say, okay, for any listeners who might like to reach out to us uh, and and drop us some more questions, we would be happy to take them. So, In fact, we would love it yeah. because we get sick of just, you know, talking to ourselves. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And so uh, in our show notes, you'll be able to find uh, our email address, and our email address is renovationmaderight at gmail.com. You can find that in the show notes. Uh, if you have some questions or something you want to share about the show or something you think we can help you with, uh, we would love to have a chance to uh, answer your question on the air. So uh, please go ahead and, uh, and reach out to us and let us know. But in the interim, we've accumulated some questions from uh, back when we began, and we, we thought we would do today a little bit of a Q&A session. Yep. All right. Yeah. Mix it up a little bit. All right. We're wild and crazy here. Woo! There you, there you. <laughs> so why don't, you, uh, why don't you tee up the first one? Okay. So the first one is from John F. in Salisbury, Mass. Um, I just bought a fixer-upper, a cape that was built in about 1940. I have oak hardwood flooring underneath old carpet in the living room, and I'd like to rip up the carpet and sand and refinish the floors myself. What do I need to know so I don't ruin this floor? Ah. Okay, so uh, that's a great question, and um, so and I love the fact that we're getting sort of a little more into the nuts and bolts of it because that's a big part of the business that I like uh, and and feel comfortable in. Um, the biggest challenge you're going to go out and rent uh, a flooring machine, a floor sanding machine, and the floor sanding machines are large and heavy and um, remove vast amounts of wood very quickly. Oh, so you have to be super careful. Super careful, right? Because if you don't know what you're doing... <laughs> is, it, you, is it like like giving yourself a haircut in quarantine? Exactly. You, know, like, yeah, like you don't you, want that big stripe down the You think middle. to yourself, oh, I'll just put a number two in the trimmer, it'll be fine. And then the next thing, you've got a racing stripe down the back of your head. Right? <laughs> we don't want that. Right. And so, um, so there's two things about it. So professional flooring finishers uh, floor refinishers use two tools, both of which have the potential to do massive amounts of damage if you don't do them care if you don't use them carefully. The first one is just your basic floor sanding machine. Um, you you want to rent one that also has a dust pickup to it, that so you're not gonna. Uh, it, the idea of dustless sanding, unless you are a professional, is don't don't delude yourself. You're going to create dust in your house, right? But pick up a machine that's going that's got a built-in uh, dust extraction system to it, um, and then. Be very careful. You need to move your, your machine at a consistent pace. If you slow down or you stop, the machine is removing material at the same pace regardless of whether, whether you change your not. pace, right? Right. So you can – and 
And a typical hardwood floor, like the one that you're talking about here, is probably started out its life as a three-quarter inch thick floor. And then it got laid for the first time, and, and after it was laid, it was sanded and, and, and finished, right? Even in that first go-round, it loses some of its thickness. Maybe you lost a sixteenth of an inch of thickness, maybe a little more than that uh, in the first go-round, um, where you're trying to sand a brand new floor and make it uniform and smooth before you finish it. Mm-hmm. After that, and you come back to do a refinish, you're probably talking about almost an eighth of an inch, uh, you know, maybe three sixteenths, I'm sorry, maybe... Uh, three thirty seconds of an inch, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but you're you're taking off reasonable amounts of flooring, right? So so there's actually a limited lifespan uh, to how many times you could sand a floor before you actually get down. The thing that stops you is when you get down to the point where you're seeing fasteners. You're seeing the nails that you use to lay the floor. Mm-hmm. Then the floor is done. It's got to get ripped out and restarted. One of the telltale signs about maybe how many times the floor has been refinished and whether you have many more refinishings in the life of the floor is around the perimeter. Sometimes you might see that the floor sort of uh, sort of slopes up at the very edge of the floor going toward the baseboard, and that's where they that's where if they had ground the floor down any further, you actually see a gap by the baseboard, right? right. So, they, so they can't do that. So you can, you can see the floor sort of slope up. That's in, an indication the floor has already had at least one refinishing in its lifetime, right? So... Um, you have to be mindful of that, and you have to be mindful that your real goal is that you're trying to remove just enough material so you're back down to fresh wood, and you can take it. It can take a fresh finish. Now, the other tool that's also super dangerous is the edger. The edger is this sort of death-like wielding machine that's on a couple of wheels. It's also heavy, <laughs> and it's this circular disc uh, that has got a uh, has got. Um, uh, uh, you know, sanding, sandpaper essentially is what it is, and it's used to clean up the part of the floor that you can't access with the big machine, right? And so, cleaning up the part of the floor around the edges um, is this is this uh, uh, you know ra- this orbital machine, uh, but it too can move remove wood really quickly, and it has a greater tendency to be able to leave swirl marks, right? So your your big sander is what they call a drum sander. So it's got a big drum that rolls around and you're moving it over the floor and it's kind of removing material. As long as you move it at a steady pace, it's removing material consistently. The edger, same kind of thing. If you don't move it consistently and you don't keep it moving, you're going to create gouges, you're going to create swirls. So it's a, it's a question. This may feel a little crazy to you, but if I had never done it before and I was going to give it a try, um, I'd actually probably grab a few scraps of wood uh, and put that together and get a sense of what these machines do mm. to wood that I don't care about. Right. Right. Um, because, like I said. Or if you have another section of the house that you're definitely ripping up and putting something else down, practice on that. Even better. Yeah. Even better. But um, but it's about the pace. It's about being careful about how long you let it stay in one place. Uh, it literally, you know, can go right through the floor. I mean, <laughs> not in the blink of an eye, but you can literally leave yourself, you know, a half-inch divot in the floor oh, if you're not, if you're not careful. Terrible. Right? So one other thing to think about, though, is many people think, oh, okay, it's time for me to sand and refinish. It, that may be true if you've let your floor really go. Right. If you've gotten to the point where you now see bare wood coming through and you uh, in the high traffic areas, you've let it wear down to bare wood, um, then you're there and you need to do a full sand and recoat. If, however, uh, you've maintained your floor well, people have taken their shoes off and they've come in your home. You've been cognizant about uh, about trying not to overwear your floor and you're just the floor is just looking shabbier, a little duller. You could do what they call a screening. 
And a screening is a different machine. A screening is more like you might remember the uh, the floor buffer that the uh, that the uh, that that your janitor used to use in school, mm-hmm. right? Making yep. making the the tiles all nice and shiny. That kind of a machine, there's a, they they use a similar thing that instead of having a real sanding machine, a real sander to it, it's got a it's got like a screen. Um, it's almost it's almost like like a Scotch guard, like, like a Scotch pad, yeah, like a Scotch yeah. spray pad, right? Exactly, right. Scuffs it up, right? And it scuffs it up. It'll take the gloss off of the urethane and make it ready to receive fresh urethane, right? But in order for that to work well, you got to be in a place where you don't have any, uh, you know, meaningful bare wood because that stuff's got is going to always now not look clean, right? right? And if your and if your floor has been under carpet for who knows how long, it may actually be in pretty good shape. It may it may just need you know a little scuffing and then refinishing. That's exactly right. So let's just talk very briefly about what you would use to refinish. Yeah, so that's a great question. There's really two products. Uh, there's two. Um, uh, you know, schools of thought in that one is an oil-based urethane and one is an acrylic or water-based urethane, right? Um, and the oil-based urethane lays up heavier and thicker, um, but also typically imparts uh, a color, a, a yellowness to it, right? So, um, so whatever your wood looks like in its purest form, it does change when you use an oil-based urethane, and it does make it a little, a little, for lack of a better word, yellower. If you will, right? which is not necessarily a bad thing. No, you no, know, no. There, I mean, there's a richness to it. Like you know, when right. you think about like putting oil on a, p- a raw piece of wood, the color comes out. So it's not yeah. a, it's not a bad thing. But you should uh, just I, be aware of that. Like if you wanted a white maple floor, if you had a maple floor down, right. yours is oak. If you had a maple floor and you wanted to keep it as white as possible, you're not going to want to use an oil base here. Right, and in which, in which case, you know, so like the oil base, I hear people talk about using that oil because it adds sort of like a honey glow to it, is sort of the, right. the way I hear it referred to. And it's uh, in my which sounds better than yellow, yeah, right. frankly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honey glow, yellow yeah, sounds yellow, like urine, and honey so glow good, sounds right. better. Yeah. yeah, fair enough, fair okay. enough. Um, and... Uh, So if we switch gears to the uh, the um, acrylic or waterborne urethane, what you get in that scenario is you get um, a very clear product. It also is, is technically harder. Um, it doesn't feel like it lays up as thick, so the water goes on thinner as you might expect. You might feel so com- yeah, you might can feel compelled to do an extra coat or two, um, but it ends up actually making a harder clearer, truer surface, right? Well, it dries faster too. And I know that one of it the does. issues that when you, especially, you know, if it's, if you're doing this in the winter and it's a little bit cold, that it could take, you know, two, three days for your, for your floor to dry so that you can actually get on it and put another coat. And the problem with exactly. that is that that whole time there's dust that's landing in there and imperfections. And, yep. you know, the faster yep. you can get it to dry, the better off you are, it well, seems to me. And coupled with that, probably the last, the last big differentiator is the stink. Right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. the oil-based urethane you stinks, can't be in the house. gives you a headache, uh, yada, yada. The, the acrylic urethane, it's not that it doesn't have an odor, but it's not a noxious odor. It's uh, And it and it's, it passes very quickly because, like you said, it, it cures up very right. fast. Right. So, um, so John, you asked a pretty simple question. I probably told you a lot more than you really were looking for no, uh, on, okay. on all things you want to know about wood flooring. So that was for uh, for John from Salisbury and happy to, uh, happy to field that question. And good luck with your floor finishing and be careful. So, um, okay, so now we've got one that I think is probably more in your wheelhouse than mine, Brenda. Okay. Uh, and this next one is from Sandy G. in Reading, Mass. Uh, and her question is, my house is a Victorian home, but the kitchen was remodeled sometime in the 80s, and it doesn't fit at all. I am planning on redoing it sometime in the next couple of years, and I want to feel like I want it to feel like the original, but also work as a modern kitchen. Any design hints? 
Oh, yes, lots. <laughs> right. It's very exciting. Fire away. Um, so you want it to look like the original, except, like you said, the original is highly inefficient kitchen, right? You know, it, a Victorian kitchen was designed actually for the help, not for the person that's living there, and nobody really cared about the help. Um, so uh, it was also what is called, what we call now is an unfitted kitchen, which ah. basically means... Which people people actually spend a lot of money to try to get unfitted kitchens now. People spend a tremendous amount of money to get unfitted kitchens because they want it to look appropriate to the period of time where the house was built, which I agree with in some cases because um, it doesn't look dated. See, the problem is is that you know, you know the kitchen was done in the 80s and it's very obvious that it was done in the 80s. So it doesn't fit the house anymore. So when you're living in a period house, it makes sense to have a space look like what was original to the house because then it doesn't look dated. So in 10 years from now, you don't walk in and go, ugh, this looks like 10 years ago, whatever the fashion trend was at that point, as opposed to when you walk in, you say, oh, this really fits this house. Um, so anyway, what unfitted kitchens look like are... Uh, so modern kitchens right now, you have a whole run of cabinetry and it's all built in. Um, and in older kitchens, they would have a separate sink unit and a separate uh, freestanding fridge and a separate hutch and maybe a work surface, but it was also maybe the table that you sat at to have, you know, your the helps meals or the kids' meals while the adults were sitting in the dining room. Um, so when you're looking for an unfitted space, what you want to do is create spaces that feel like they were original but function a lot better. I think it makes sense to not necessarily do unfitted kitchens 100% because they aren't very efficient. You have, you know, you don't have a lot of contiguous surfaces to meal prep on. Um, you don't have... Um, the appliances can be crazy expensive. So um, again, if you're if you have an unlimited budget, really, what you if you want a kitchen that really looks like it was built in a Victorian home, you want to have appliances that look original or can't be seen at all. So you want a sub-zero fridge that's covered with paneling and looks like a hutch as opposed to a refrigerator. So there there's a middle ground in there somewhere, which is to have sort of a fitted kitchen. Um, but use construction techniques on your cabinetry that looks like what would have been built um, at that point. Uh, materials that, like, so if you look around the rest of your house, maybe you have a built-in hutch in your dining room. Maybe you match the material in that hutch, right? Maybe you do something that would have been appropriate to that house. If you have a lot of, you know, walnut or mahogany or um, some other darker wood, maybe you pick that up. Um, or paint. Right? There are a lot of there are a lot of painted finishes. Um, and make sure you do an inset door, which is a traditional style of construction as opposed to full overlays or a more modern look. Let me jump in with, on a little bit of a tangent with this too, and maybe you'll have some thoughts about this as well. But one of the things I know that we run into a lot when we're dealing with these Victorian homes, y you made a really apt point, I think, about the fact that the kitchens really weren't designed for the owners. No. Right? Um, no, they're very and, unfriendly. And I think in, in Victorian homes, more than probably just about any other, we run into more problems with um, openings in kitchens, the number of openings oh, in kitchens. Oh, yeah, right? like eight doors yeah, so going to various places. Yeah, and so between between doors and windows and different ways of accessing the space in and out, it it clearly it, it makes the designer's job a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Or right? windows that run down below where Tall a traditional window, right, another, countertop right. would Tall run. Yep. And, you know, and so I think... Um, 
that's a good consideration for for someone who's thinking about trying to be true to the Victorian roots. But you got to be also smart about making the home work for our lifestyle today. Right. right. And so that may mean that in addition to all the aesthetic things and the functional things you're talking about, that we're looking at the possibility of closing up doors or, right. or or moving openings or combining things so that we don't have so so that as we're doing this new kitchen this new space we're setting ourselves up for not just aesthetic success but also practical success right exactly right. i mean so there there are ways of marrying those the the look of uh, a victorian kitchen for instance put a tin ceiling in um you know have have some of that detail that you uh ordinarily wouldn't get put it you know a painted tin ceiling or, um, you know, we've even had clients do do um, actual tin unfinished. It's beautiful. So there's, um, there's some really interesting details you can get in there that don't affect the, the, the effectiveness, the efficiency of your kitchen. So definitely think about things like that. But I would, I would definitely say get, pick up on the aesthetics of the rest of the house, but don't necessarily marry yourself to trying to create a space that looks exactly the way it would have looked when it was built because it's it's not going to work well for you. But there is definitely there are definitely lots and lots of ways to making it look fantastic. I think the last thing to consider is on that. So I think that those all those were great points. Um, is just when you are um, when you're making a choice to work with somebody, uh, not everybody has had experience renovating Victorian kitchens. So when you find a designer, uh, when you're looking for a designer, make sure they've got some experience Yeah, there, or even right? just ask, you know, period homes. Have you done period, period yeah, homes? Period homes, right? probably a better so, way to say that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, because the person that you're working with on design side, um, you don't want to be, you know, the one leading the charger. You want them to be the one that's right. got that, that right. knowledge background. Right? Exactly. All right. So who was that for? That was for uh, Sandy, Sandy from Reading. from Reading, Mass. So, yep. hopefully, so. hopefully you found that uh, helpful, Sandy. And uh, let's. I think we have time for one more okay. in today's show. Well, we have a question here from Ravi J in Fishkill, New York. So we're reaching all the way Ravi. to New York. Ravi. Um, help, my deck is failing. I noticed last year that there's a lot of bounce in my deck that is four feet above the ground. I crawled under and noticed that there is a lot of rot in some of the framing pieces. The top decking was actually replaced about 10 years ago and is in good shape, so I don't want to tear the whole thing off. Is there a way to fix this so I can keep it? So, um, so Ravi, obviously you have to be more specific in some cases about the details around the prod, around the deck, but in general, uh, there are band-aids that you can do to resupport a deck. One of the biggest problems that we find with failing deck construction is the way it's attached to the house and especially the way it's been um, waterproofed or flashed to the house. So if that detail isn't right, uh, then you're in a situation where you really need to go backward and and take things apart in a meaningful way to get that part of it right. Because if it's not right, not only will it end up negatively impacting the deck, it also will begin to negatively impact your house um, and, and create rot and expense for the house. If it's just a question of it's got some bounce to it, um, you know, decks, unfortunately, are often those things that homeowners look at almost like painting. And they're like, oh, I can have my brother in luck. I'm over. We'll build a deck this weekend. Well, Today, uh, you know, because of, of multiple failures that you, that you can see in the news where people have a party. Like parties and, and like the whole thing yeah, collapses. And there's, and there's 20 people yeah, on the deck and, right. da- and down it goes. Um, today, the deck construction codes have become very stringent and they require specialized hardware, specialized connections, uh, and, and a lot of knowledge about how you actually are going to build the substructure. What, you know, what we put on top of the deck in terms of the decking, you refer to your decking being relatively decent. 
What we put on top of the deck, that's just the window dressing, right? That's we can put just about anything it's on like a properly paint built on deck. The walls. Right. Right. But it's the it's the frame and the assembly of the frame and the supports that really uh, are really the th- things that are most important uh, and need to be well thought through. Um, so making sure that you actually have piers, it's it's not uncommon for us to to uh, come across decks where you know they're put on the posts are put up on top of blocks uh, sitting on the dirt, or uh, or even just go in the ground a few feet. Or people have poured some concrete, and you may think, okay, that's great, they poured concrete, but it's a foot thick, right? And in in your market time comes, your deck doesn't move, the deck doesn't, the ground doesn't freeze and heave the deck, right? So making sure you have supports in the right places and making sure that the deck is well connected is probably the first and foremost, right? So, uh, and in some cases, it may be, in your case, possibly, it may be that the original builder, if this this bounciness is a new problem, that's a different thing. That means something has changed, right? And then you need to look deeper. If If the deck has always had a fair amount of bounce to it, that may just mean that the builder maxed out the span, meaning that, um, you know, if a two by eight can carry 12 feet, uh, but is more comfortable carrying 10 feet. Well, he did mention there was some rot. Oh, okay, that's right. So. That's right. Um, well, so that's another thing point. Right? So if you're seeing rot too, press-treated lumber, there's all different, there's, there are a couple of different kinds of press-treated lumber, some that's intended for contact with the soil, some that's not, but, it, but press-treated lumber um, can rot, right? And especially in some cases if it wasn't well done. So if you're having meaningful rot in the frame, then, um, then it's time to replace the frame. You can salvage all your decking, um, but uh, but then the frame needs to come out. And, and I'm not going to suggest to you to sort of band-aid it by putting additional lumber beside lumber, right? So if you have existing rotting lumber, it needs to go. Um, it's a bit of a cancer. Cut it out and replace it with new material. Um, if it's widespread, then the, then the, your deck is telling you it needs to be replaced. If it's, if it's isolated and there's a couple of bad boards, okay, remove those and replace those with new material. Um, and that's probably the best way for you to go. So hopefully uh, that gives you a little bit of help. I hope so. All right. <laughs> Sounds like you're going to be taking your deck apart, though. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, Rob. <laughs> so uh, you have been listening to another episode of Renovation Made Right, which we're having fun uh, bringing you and hoping you're enjoying. Uh, and we would love it if you would, again, send us your questions. Uh, in the show notes, you'll find our email at renovationmaderight at gmail.com. All right. Yeah, but you got to wrap it up. So All right. I'm wrapping it up. This is a uh, Renovation <laughs> You can't just right? leave them hanging. Well, you got to say... Goodbye. Thank you for visiting Renovation Made Right. Send us your emails at renovationmaderight at gmail.com, please, with questions. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for visiting us again. This is Brenda Bryan. (laughs) This is David Bryan saying the same things that Brenda just said. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes on our website, renovationmaderight.com, and follow us on social media at Renovation Made Right. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you like the show, leave us a review.